Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. Uh, the show called Product A Plus. My name is Hunter, and I'm joined today, as always, by Pierre. And on this show, which is, again, called Product A Plus, we talk about movies. Uh, we pair a new release with an ongoing project, eh, so-called. Uh, this week, we are <laughs> on our second-to-last batch of uh, what did I call it last week? Turkeys by Eagles? Yes. What genius phrase emanated from my brain? Um, turkeys by Eagles. And the Eagles this week are Werner Herzog and Francis Ford Coppola, respectively. And they directed two films called Queen of the Desert and Jack. And we're going to talk about those. But before we do that, we have to talk about a very special film. Called God Told Me To, which was written and directed by Larry Cohen. Um, and we watched that uh, basically because I realized it was streaming on the Criterion channel and that I wanted to watch it. And that's uh, all there is to it for the most part. Because it is not a new release. Nope. Uh, but it is new to us. Neither of us had seen this film before I suggested or very forcefully said we should do it. Hmm. So. synopsis for the film God Told Me To. I think you should, given that you were the one who brought it to the podcast. All right. So, uh, the film God Told Me To, and I'm going to be, I'm a little sketchy on the beginning of the movie because I watched it when I was very sick. <laughs> and a couple of weeks ago, I'm guessing. <laughs> yep. Uh, but let's think. Actually, I vividly remember the opening. Um, oh, no, the opening I remember too. So, um, it's New York City. In the 70s. Mm-hmm. I can picture it. Okay. Is this day There's or night? A wall. It's night. It's or day, rather. It's the middle of the day. People okay. should be at work. There's people on the streets wandering around, going to work, going to their them. jobs, yep. their kids, everyday people. Mm-hmm. What's this? Bang, a gunshot rings out. Well, Someone falls dead. Ah. There's been a shooting. Bang, another one, another one, another one. People are just getting shot left and right. There's a guy on a water tower who's got a gun and he's shooting people oh my god what's happening and uh then the police locate him well a police a police officer named uh <laughs> detective lieutenant peter j nicholas <laughs> uh tony Bianco, uh climbs up the tower and confronts this this mass murderer what does he say, Hugh? What what creepy words emanate from his his parched lips? By way of an explanation for his monstrous deeds. Mm. He says, God told me to. Hmm. Intriguing. And then does he die? He jumps off the water tower. Ah uh, yes. To his death. Yeah. Well yeah, yeah, I guess probably his death. To his death, yes. Alright, so movie over, right? Yeah. 
That's the end. Oh, no, but there's another crime. There's a stabbing and another shooting. All the, the culprits say the same thing. They say, God told me to, to the same police officer. Wow. Um, and what what is the, the solution to this riddle? This has something to do with the extreme Catholic faith that our hero professes. Maybe. Quite possibly. Does it have anything to do with an intersex Jesus-like figure <laughs> who mysteriously wanders through the film, but no one can remember his face? Sure. Probably. Um, should I go into more, or is that enough of a synopsis for now? I thought you were going to allude to the science fiction aspect. Are there alien abductions and shit? Cool. <laughs> Done. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, I'll check it. Are there alien abductions made by uh, edited and manipulated stock footage from other movies? <laughs> <laughs> you betcha. All right, but uh, Hugh, all that being said, what did you think of this film, which is entitled "God Told Me To"? Um, I this I'm guessing this is the only Larry Cohen film that I have thus far seen. Mm, me too. Uh, and I wasn't terribly well versed on who he was. I'd heard the name, but that was about it. Um, so this was new to me, and I would have to say that this film, pretty good time. Mm. Solid ninety ninety one minutes. Always a plus. <laughs> Really enjoyed the weird hybrid of science fiction and religious thriller, police procedural mm. nonsense that it had going. And I liked the, the sort of faintly trashy tone, mm. you know, that befits like an exploitation B-movie type picture. I liked the way that that sort of undercut the thematic thrust of the film, like the the Catholicism and, and that all that sort of nonsense. Yeah, the more philosophical sort of points, yeah. Because I think if it was self-serious, it wouldn't have particularly interested me. But mm, yeah. because it was told in this kind of enjoyable, pulpy way, I found that really enjoyable and engaging. I loved mm. the uh, weird Jesus guy, and that scene where he <laughs> meets him in a, in a burning basement is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's very nicely paced. Uh, it's it's just entertaining all the way through. And mm. I think the central performance by Tony Lobianco is actually really really strong. And uh he he gave me uh Peter Falk vibes. Mm. Yeah, I can see that. Um apparently Robert Forster was supposed to originally play the part. Mm. But then he didn't like working with Larry Cohen so he walked off. Oh, uh, yeah, I think I read that quote because apparently Larry Cohen was, was, you know, sort of an abusive presence on the set or something. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I think I think they did well with Tony Lobianco. They made made some uh, alchemy. Hmm. That, that magic mixture which can only come through a director's vision as channeled by uh, specific actors. Hmm. As they say. Well, I also quite enjoyed this uh, film, Hugh. It had a very nice vibe. Mm. Um, you know, some of this I can only credit to, you know, they just don't really make movies like this anymore. Uh, they certainly don't look like this. Um, just because of, you know, the way in which low budget filmmaking has sort of changed over the years. 
Um, I just, I, I, and you know, I don't want to credit too much of it just to me enjoying, you know, movies that were shot in New York, but, uh, during this time, but, um, I think that the sort of, um, you know, man on the street or, uh, uh, almost cinema verite ish feel of this film, I think really works for it too. Yeah. 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 Um, and I think this is especially, um, brought out of this amazing sequence where uh, Andy Coffin of all people playing this uh, police or this police officer who becomes one of these uh, you know spree killers Um, and it's just it's just an incredible uh, sequence because it's like how on earth did they shoot this scene in the middle of this parade like what the hell (laughs) Um, but I yeah I enjoyed sort of the the Hopey and um, yeah, the the mix the the clashing of like the high and low elements also was very successful for me. I think. Yeah, yeah, I really like the fact like you know I was somewhat interested because of its the way it was executed with the Catholic stuff, but I was even more interested when it when it transpired that there was this science fiction element to it. Yeah, and that you know the the cop is actually like a super being created by aliens or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some some nonsense like that. I think it goes it it goes like so far in its own like dumb mythology, which I thought was enjoyable. Kind of reminded me of like an X File a little bit. Mm. Um, and I also agree that uh, Tony Lo Bianco is is pretty pretty good in the role. Um, and you know you just don't see uh, actors like that really anymore. No, you don't. <laughs> I yeah, that, that, it really like very, harkens back to a, a particular time. Like like white ethnic actors, you know, mm. it's not something that uh, really exists. We like our bland, uh, you know, Australian types now, <laughs> <laughs> and very characterful faces. <laughs> yes, a lot of edge edge chest hair. And speaking of bland Australian types, I actually did think of that shitty like Eric Banner religious police procedural that was released a handful of years ago. Yeah, I know that one that's in New York, too, yeah. right? What's it called? It's directed by the guy who did Doctor Strange, I think. Mm. Um, with the, isn't Edgar Ramirez also in that? I can't remember, but that seems like the, the complete shitty version of, the, of this type of film. <laughs> but obviously, the, even that film was a higher budget than this one did. Oh, indeed, uh, It's yeah. called Deliver Us From Evil. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, the one. And yeah. Edgar Ramirez does indeed co-star in it. Hmm. I believe he's like a, I believe it's like a buddy cop film kind of where he's like a priest who teams up with Eric Vanna. Yeah, a, yeah, that's right. As a, yeah. And yeah, his his faith gets shaken when you know whatever, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> it just sounded terrible. <laughs> I mean, but maybe it isn't. We haven't seen it, so who knows? Yeah, we don't want to judge it based on the evidence that uh, a that it was directed by the guy who directed Doctor Strange. And B, I think it was universally panned. Yeah, it it made its budget back though, so it can't be all bad. Did it really? Wow. Yeah. It had $30 million budget and it made $87.9 million. We're probably the only people who have mentioned it since it got released. <laughs> probably. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure I listened to a podcast about it. That's why I have some memory of it. All right. Um, what is Eric Bader doing now? I guess he's on I know. He's sort, of, he's sort of fizzled out a little bit, hasn't he? Let's have a look. He was, uh, he was on a TV series called Dirty John, which I remember being advertised. Yeah, I heard the podcast version. Mm. Well, it's got two seasons. It's one of those things where it's like, the podcast version wasn't that great, but it was okay. But it was like, it's one of those things where it's like, this is an interesting non-fiction story. As soon as you dramatize it, it's not particularly interesting. Yeah. It becomes more um, routine in the world of fiction. Mm. 
Yeah, what is the dry? It's Australian. I don't know. Robert Conaway. Let's see. Looks like a pedophile. <laughs> what else has he directed? <laughs> and he's playing uh, a character Falcon. fittingly called Aaron Fork. So it's coming all the way back to yeah, Peter God Falk. Told Me To, which doesn't have Peter Fork in it, but has a guy who kind of looks like but, Peter Fork. But could have, could have been Peter Fork. The, uh, been let's Peter say Falk. <laughs> the Italian Peter Fogg. <laughs> mm. um, has this made you curious as to, to explore some of uh, Larry Cohen's other films? Mm, yeah, I'd watch some of his other stuff based on this. I want to watch the stuff, because I've heard really good things about that. Um, yeah, and, and Q, the Winged Serpent, is also supposed to be good. It's interesting, he sort of started his career in uh, black exploitation, actually. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. He directed, like, Black Caesar... For instance, mm, okay, um, and then he kind of ended as like a, just a screenwriter, which is kind of a shame. But like he wrote a uh, phone booth, for instance. Did he really? That shitty. Um... Yeah, the Joel Schumacher Schumacher film. Oh no, no, sorry. I was I, I immediately switched to the other sort of closed room film with fucking Anagram? Deadpool in it. Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> I was thinking oh, of that buried, oh, buried, or whatever. Buried. Yeah. <laughs> you mean the. Uh... The, the film that uh, <laughs> was was uh, <laughs> brought up on the podcast not that long ago because it featured prominently in uh, Jafar Panahi's... That's uh, right. <laughs> the DVD <Shutter> collection. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> His house arrest like, DVD <laughs> collection. <laughs> <laughs> See, it's it's perfect because he's also buried in... Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the genius of, uh, of mise-en-scene, as you say, in the film studies world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like there isn't really that much to talk about with God Told Me To Do, though. You know, after you sort of mentioned its style and, and its its um, the sort of sci-fi elements, there's not a lot to dig into. No. But I, I definitely did appreciate watching it. Um, wow, Bernard Herbert was supposed to score it, too. Really? Yeah. And we scored uh, It's Alive. Weird. That is weird, especially for 1976 <laughs> when he had a bigger profile. Yeah. Hmm. But he, he died before it could um, be finished. Are you fucking watching something on your phone? No, that's from outside my room. Wow. Usually I'm the one who has that annoying audio that bleeds over. But not this episode. Because I'm going to control my hands and not fiddle with anything. Wow. You know, well, I'm going to try to anyway. Anyway, God told me to, that's it. <laughs> oh, yep. So God told us to stop talking about the movie. Yep, definitely... Hopefully it's still on the uh, Criterion channel. Alright, it's project time. Project time, 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 it's project time. Turkey, tomato. Ba, 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 da, ba. Okay, um, what... Great films are we talking about on today's project segment? You? Uh, we're talking about Werner Herzog's Queen of the Desert. Mm. His classic, classic? 2015 film. Mm. Starring Nicole Kidman and some other people who we'll get to. Notably one particular person. Oh, you know what we forgot to mention on, on the top of this, uh, on the top of this episode? Yeah. We forgot to mention that, of course, this podcast is a very special episode. 
because it is simultaneously the Kobe Bryant Memorial podcast and also the Johnny Depp is Innocent podcast. So. <laughs> <laughs> Just putting that into the ether. Um, so you could donate to the Johnny Depp Innocence Project. <laughs> <laughs> and the Kobe Bryant What Rape Project. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, now we can get back on with the show. Sort of to make sure that we got that on the record. Yeah, that was important. I'm glad. I'm glad you remembered. Uh, yeah, yeah. So we were talking about Werner Herzog's 2015 film <laughs> Queen of the Desert and yep. Francis Ford Coppola's 1996. Uh, what's his name? Robert Williams' vehicle, <laughs> Jack. Uh, we're gonna start with Queen of the Desert, right? I don't know what the percentages were. You tell me. Uh, I, I, I got a new computer, the notes. I'm looking it up right now. You're looking it up? Yeah, that's it got on Rotten Tomatoes. Queen of the Desert got 18. Okay. Jack got... 18. Oh, no! <laughs> what? It is the same. <laughs> Let's just start with Queen of the Desert. Because uh, I feel like that one will go pretty quick. <laughs> just have a feeling about it. Alright. I Sand people, I understand. The sand people, I understand. The sand people, mm-hmm. Fuck me, Franco. Fuck me, Franco style. Fuck me, Franco. I'm a Franco file. Fuck me, Franco. Mm-hmm. Hey, um, so, uh, do you want to, do you want to summarize Queen of the Desert? Because it had so many Australians in it. Like yeah. Maybe just one or maybe two, I think. Maybe just one. Did it even have one? I can't even remember. Yeah, fucking Nicole Kidman. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ, dude. Speaking of fucking Nicole Kidman. <laughs> James, <laughs> James Franco. James <laughs> Franco. I've got to go for the same joke with that one. <laughs> Um, anyway, Queen of the Desert. What is Queen of the Desert? That's a great question. What is it? It's a uh, desert epic directed by Werner Herzog based on a real story um, centering around the British person, Gertrude Bell, <laughs> who famously travelled throughout the Middle East. Uh Made a lot of connections with people there, helped, you know, divide up the uh, the land for the colonial powers or some shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> Whatever, it's a real story. Gertrude <laughs> Bell, she's on Wikipedia. Look it up. Um, I, I feel like, yeah, this uh, film is hard to summarize because it feels like nothing happens in it. So. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so okay, so okay. I'll try and remember it based on the film as opposed to what I know of Gertrude Bell, which is only based on this film. Anyway, so like Gertrude Bell <laughs> is Nicole Kidman. Uh, she lives okay. in England. Okay, she's a she's a wealthy socialite or something. Yeah, she's the daughter of well of rich people. But she feels, uh, you know, a little uh, hampered by the prospect of you know living in England and just getting married or some shit. Yeah. She wants to be more than just a wife. 
as we all do. So she eventually convinces her father to post her somewhere. Where was uh, it? In, in Iran. Was it in Iran? It was in Iran. Okay. But it was not shot in Iran, obviously. So. No. Um, working at the embassy there, the British embassy. Mm. Um, so that's what she does. She meets uh, James Franco, who's some professor dude guy, mm-hmm. implausibly. And uh, they have a bit of a fling. She wants to marry him. Her father disapproves. Franco goes, well, I guess I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> <laughs> he does. As we, as we wish he would in real life, too. Um, and then she goes off into the desert. Yep. Uh, networks a bit with the locals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. Helps the British colonial forces out, thanks to her knowledge. That's about it. That sounds sounds good to me. She meets another guy, he dies as well. <laughs> Which guy are you talking about? Oh, yeah, Damien Lewis. Yeah. Yeah. She meets Damien like Lewis. A, he's a, he gets killed. Ambassador or something to some country. To the, yeah, whatever. To the, the Turks, thing. maybe? Yeah, that's that sounds about right. Yeah. Well, oh, he, can I tell you what I thought about this movie? You loved it. Yep, that's right. Wow. No, I, you no, too? I will not be taking other, other other questions about it. <laughs> Me either. <laughs> well, okay, that's it. <laughs> no, no, we that's four thumbs movie. up from Project A Plus. <laughs> um, no, no, we should talk about this movie in. in All right, let me let me put it this way. Why did you love this movie so much? <laughs> well, I I really appreciated um, uh, Jay Stricko's commitment, <laughs> <laughs> and um, the photography, <laughs> uh, the the digital photography. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Every grain of sand, baby. Uh, 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 I like that Damien Lewis doesn't. He's 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 like a uh, Jamie Bell. He's he spent too much time in the states, so he, you don't know what accent he's doing. It just sounds weird. It just sounds fake. But he he should just be talking his normal accent. Um. That's about it. <laughs> what, what did you want about it? I was actually, like, surprised when I saw the credits that, that it was James Franco because he got so lost <laughs> in the character that, you know... I was like, who's this convincingly British guy? <laughs> With a perfectly normal, not inconsistent accent. Yeah, it sounds like he spent a lot of time studying how to... How to do an accent? Mm. Yeah, that's definitely what I definitely what I thought. And I was like, "What? This is the this is this is the guy from Spider Man? What the fuck?" No, no. Let's review our actual thoughts here. Uh, what? Because <laughs> uh, I got to be honest, I uh, didn't love. This oh, you movie. didn't like it? Yeah. What about you? What's not to like? Um, well, we could talk about the uh, very flat digital photography, which makes everything look bland and washed out. Mm-hmm. To start, 
Uh, we could talk about the fact that uh, James Franco is terrible. <laughs> James Franco is amazingly terrible in this. The, the, yeah. love, the love story between Nicole Kidman's character and his character, as portrayed by them, mm. is is probably the most laughably ridiculous <laughs> romance I've ever seen depicted on yeah. screen. Yeah, it's pretty bad. And, like, disgusting. Like, the, even just the thought of Nicole Kidman, the actor, kissing James Franco, the actor, is very off-putting. But, like, seen through the lens of this historical story where James Franco is supposed to be this, like, learned professor, and Nicole Kidman, you know, a couple of decades his senior... <laughs> Is yeah. under his spell or some shit, you know. It's. Ah. I mean, I guess. Yeah, I guess pretty, most of the time, dope. like the men are under her spell, but. Yeah. Nonetheless, Which, um, I must say, is not was not convincing. No. Um, I did, I did not think that Nicole Kidman was especially uh, uh, charismatic in this film. No, I would say, like, I'm not a fan of Nicole Kidman's acting in general. I thought she was, like, mm. okay in the role, is the best I can say. And maybe it's just because, like, next to James Franco, <laughs> I, I anything she was, would come as relief. I thought she was literally nothing. Um, yeah, like, there's, not, thought... there's nothing to the character. It's, there's not much detail or depth as rendered in this screenplay. Yeah, but you can, you can have a, you know, it's very thin character and still add a level of, you know, charisma or iconography to it, but uh, that is not something that happens in this film. I mean, I don't remember her performance. I just remember not, like, hating it, if that Uh, makes sense. Yeah, that that, that works. It's it's just a zero to me. Yeah, yeah, it's just what it was. Just returning to to the scenes with Franco (laughs) and Kidman, like, it, it literally looked to me as though... Each of them were questioning why they were in the same scenes together. <laughs> Neither yeah. of them looked comfortable to be there. And they'll probably both like, why is this person here? Why am I, what are we doing? Yeah. It was so creepy. Yeah. A- absolutely like negative chemistry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, part of it's because Nicole Kidman is like, I, mean, I don't know why she seems like a bad choice to play this character. Mm. He's like too. He's too old to play her for one thing. I think. Yeah. Because uh, it just it seems so strange that she's like in her parents' house when she's like you know in her fifties. Yeah, that yeah that that aspect of the story. <laughs> I guess like she's okay to play her like later on when she's yeah. more of a seasoned explorer. But like yeah, yeah when, when she's, she's like, like young, saying daddy, but I want to marry James Franco. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who could resist James Franco? Really? Mm. Uh, I thought the. Um, narrative in this film was just nothing (laughs) nothing everything was both treated super seriously and i didn't follow what was happening at any point Mm. (laughs) um and it didn't really seem to matter i didn't really i i i I don't understand why herzog made this film um to Mm. be honest was wondering the same thing (laughs) doesn't really seem to exist for any reason You, you can see what this film wants to be right yeah kind of a woke uh, version of like um, you know Lawrence of Arabia. Well, a corrective to Lawrence of Arabia in some ways. Yeah, yeah. Centered around you know a prominent female contribution that yeah maybe has been overshadowed by figures like Lawrence, who appears in this yes. film played by Robert Pattinson, of course. 
and uh, he's pretty pretty, pretty good performance. Yeah, I I don't agree with you. I, <laughs> I, I was fine with him in this. I thought he was annoyingly ticky. Yeah, I thought it was okay. <laughs> well, you've gone from pretty good to just okay. I'm I'm winning you over. <laughs> Who's fine? Uh, I just thought this film was extremely unconvincing at every point. Yeah, so it wants to be this this desert epic, Robert Lean yeah. style, David Lean style. Quite fact. enough money, <coughs> even if he had a lot of money. <laughs> but like, it it basically never gets off the runway. No, it's so saddled with baggage. Um, not just the like terrible performances, especially James Franco. Mm. But also trying to grapple with its, you know, colonial viewpoint in the in the year twenty fifteen, right? Which it doesn't do to any. Uh, it does not any, does uh, not reconcile that with uh, no. more contemporary views of uh, colonialism. Yeah, there's like some you know token sort of gestures at it, but I don't know. I thought the way that like her uh, guide friend character was portrayed was pretty offensive. <laughs> Yeah, it, and parts of it does sort of seem like an apology for, uh, you know, British colonialism. Yeah. Do you know what this yeah. reminded me of, most of all? Hmm. Little film called The Lost City of Zed. <laughs> uh, that's a good film, though. <laughs> Which I think all, I think it's a better film, but I think that also struggled to reconcile its colonial perspective that was inherent to the story that it was trying to tell. And also Robert Pattinson uh, was in it in a minor part. <laughs> I disagree, and Robert Pattinson's better than me. <laughs> He's better in that movie. It is a better movie, but it's a pretty similar movie to me. I, I, um, I mean, you know, you're allowed to have your opinion, but at least that no, film shows, you know, some of the horrors of uh, colonialism. Well, this film does not, so... Mm. <laughs> um, it just, it doesn't even, like, really show colonialism. <laughs> It's so weird. And, like, you know, she goes on so many different journeys in this film, but it never really feels like she's going anywhere. The people that she visits never seem like that. I don't know, like, they don't spend enough time, like, telling you who these people are, why they're important. Yeah. And also, by the end of it, even though I've, like, looked into the, the real story of uh, Gertrude Bell, I, was, I still don't really get a clear idea of what she actually achieved. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's that horrible scene at the beginning where it's like, oh, the woman brought us these maps or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty terrible. But even that is like, wait, she just made maps about... She just led to the weird division of states in modern day Middle East, which is, you know, just based on nothing for the most part. Mm. So, um, yeah. Pretty, pretty bad. Pretty uninteresting. It's probably one of the most boring films I've seen in my entire life. It's terrible. It has that the same problem that that you know films like Lawrence of Arabia that I haven't seen, but I'm assuming has this problem, <laughs> uh, where there's this very paternalistic quality that mm. marginalizes the other voices, anything other than the the dominant white colonial voices, yeah. um, and implicitly others any of the Arabic people that appear in the film, yeah. even when it's trying to be respectful or reverential towards them. They still they still come across as this exotic sort of tribe that, that she yeah. encounters. I th I, Lawrence of Arabia at least has developed, like, 
Arab characters. Mm. Well, you this can film speak does to that. Not. Um, I mean, you know, aside from like Lawrence is like the old, pretty much like the only like main like white character in the film. Mm. Um, but certainly not the only white actor. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, no, that's definitely true. But I mean, it's weird to say that Lawrence Arabia has a like is more like progressive, but I think it is to some degree because it it at least allows that its Arab characters to have like inner lives and have goals that they're accomplishing, mm. and it doesn't just reduce them to like I mean you know obviously it's a film about Lawrence, but you know they they have their own you know goals and, and desires and and their own like political machinations and stuff too. You know what I mean? Mm. <laughs> like, um, yeah. So it's. Not that a Lawrence Arabia is especially bloke, and there's definitely parts of it that are like you know very sort of of course yeah. uh, oriental oriolent eh, orientalizing, and you know racist and yeah like paternalistic as you said, but um, it's crazy that it it feels more I don't know, like <laughs> just the fact that you know I mean I can't even name any of the Arab characters in this movie because they're so they're nothing. No, there's like so so Nicole Kidman has like her faithful servant essentially, who's just like a dog's body or something. He's just like a slave, pretty yeah. much. But like you know, he loves her unabashedly for no reason. Yeah, it's garbage. Um, it's not even exciting, which Lawrence Ruby is also exciting. So. Mm. And exciting excuses a lot, I think. I just find it hilarious that the James Franco character, like, just kills himself when they can't it's, marry. It's pretty funny. The fact that, the, I mean, you know, obviously this film is, uh, you know, totally dramatically inert, but the fact that the rest <laughs> of the movie is supposed to be like, their great love affair would haunt her for the rest I of know, her life. I know, yeah. And so what we've seen of it is, like, these incredibly uncomfortable, awkward scenes between the Nicole Kidman and James Franco, and then it's like... What, he killed himself because of that? What? <laughs> this, the scene where he takes her to the top of, like, the vulture thing was pretty funny. Mm. Because it's so dumb. The, just the way this film was shot was really terrible, I think. Mm. It just felt so, like, um, you know, there's, like, tons of drone shots. It's just very flat and, I don't know, like, it, you know, at the very least when you watch this sort of film, you're like, okay, I'm going to see some pretty landscapes. You don't even really get that. No. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, this is a pretty, pretty, pretty tough watch. Yeah. Right? But, uh, you know, it's not a tough watch. Uh, another film we're going to talk about. <laughs> Come on, Jack. I'm a little boy with a twist. I look like Robin Williams circa 1996. I'm just a little Okay, so Jack is a Disney film directed by Francis Ford Coppola, starring Robin Williams. Mm. Robin Williams plays a kid with Werner Syndrome, which is a condition that causes you to physically appear to age well in excess of your actual age. Which is a, a real condition. It's a real condition. Definitely does not, uh, I, I'm sure it does doesn't not... manifest in the particular way it does here, but yeah. it is a w- real condition. Like, for, yeah. I think, for instance, that you don't <laughs> gain <laughs> the height of an adult. 
<laughs> I'm pretty sure you just stay like reasonably the same size, but like you're old, like your uh, your that, skin is wasting yeah. away and stuff. Not not to figure out part of this movie's logic immediately, but why doesn't he go through puberty? Or I guess he does, doesn't he? Because he has to shave. I yeah, I don't know how that worked. Because his puberty would have been when he was like one or something, you know, two or whatever. Yeah. But he seems in the same sexual phase as the other boys of his actual age. Which you can you can say is like a psychological, you know, because obviously sexuality is a lot of psychology, but. Uh, I don't understand why he acts like a child in this movie. <laughs> anyway, please, please continue. You don't understand the central premise of chat. <laughs> no, I, I understand. You mean to explain it again? No, no, I understand the, the the movie as what it's presenting, but I just don't, believe, I don't find it believable. You don't find it believable? All right, anyway, <laughs> no. so basically what it is is he appears to age, or his body technically ages four times faster uh, than normal. Uh. So mentally he's a kid. But his body is four times older. Yeah, it just doesn't make any sense. So when he's ten, he has the body of a forty-year-old man called Robin Williams. Mm. The main thrust of the narrative is him, uh, his parents allowing him to go to school, because previously they've kind of sheltered him from the world because they're worried about him being picked on, and also he's going to die in like ten years. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. Why bother taking um, him through school when he's, it's not going to lead him to anything? Just let him have fun all the time. But they don't even let him have fun. They force him to get tutored by uh, fucking Bill Cosby, of all people. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so that's the film. You know, he just he learns to go to school and and get accepted by his peers, mm. even though he looks like Robin Williams, their favorite actor, because they're kids and they love Disney films. <laughs> and then. Um, a friend rushes in it as a pedo. <laughs> <laughs> well, she doesn't know she's a pedo, though. No. But still, that's just like the old excuse. Like, she told me she was 18. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like at a certain level, you have to be like, okay, you know what? This guy is... <laughs> stopped it. But anyway. Um, <laughs> um, okay, should I tell you what I think about the movie Jack? Did you like the movie Jack? Uh, I'm of the opinion that uh, everyone who was even tangentially involved in making this film uh, should be put in prison, and <laughs> that's my opinion about it. What, what did you? What did you think? Did you like Jack? <laughs> hmm. <laughs> I mean, this this film has probably already been discussed ad nauseum, purely yes. purely for the fact that it was directed somehow by Francis Ford Coppola. <laughs> Totally anonymously, I think. I wouldn't say entirely anonymously, but I will say that it's exactly what you'd expect if you'd heard about this movie and were not aware of who Francis Ford Coppola was, right? Mm, If you were just like, oh, okay, so this is a Robin Williams Disney film, that's the premise, it's going to be a bit mawkish, it's going to be a dodgy comedy in other ways. It's going to be weird sex stuff, yeah. Yeah. It is that. That's what it is, right? Yeah. Did you detect Fritz for Coppola's personality in this at all? There are some flashes of visual style peppered throughout this film, very sparingly, I will say, that maybe you wouldn't have got with something more anonymously directed. Mm. But the effect, the total effect of everything in this film is exactly what you'd expect of this, right? Mm. It's a 90s Robin Williams family movie constructed around a performance gimmick 
mm. and sealed up with a sentimental message. So it basically mm. fits in with a handful of other Robin Williams pictures of the same vintage, right? Yeah, like um, Mrs. Delphi, the Doctor. Um, yeah, Patch Adams. Patch Adams, yeah, that's it. Even Bicentennial Man, where there's always that sort of stunt performance at the centre and then like a sentimental message tying everything together, whatever. Yeah, it's, it's all that. It's all that Disney nonsense. Hmm. It certainly feels a little miscalculated in a way that not all those films do. But I would say it functions on its own limited terms relative to the genre it's operating in, right? Mm. It doesn't seem like a, a failure of this type of film, which is not a no. type of film that I, I would say either of us appreciate in any way. <laughs> no. But yeah, this is, a, this is pretty difficult to actually get through. Mm. It was a long yeah, film true. as well. What was it over two, two hours? Just over two hours? Which seemed to no, was that just 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 under two hours. Just under two hours. Yeah. So is this unfairly maligned? Uh, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> this is the this is the only week where both the films we watched were absolutely dreadful. I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we can't save these ones. These are turkeys. These are headed for the chopping block. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you know part of the but this movie that I thought was the worst though? Hmm was the music, which made me want to, like, pull my hair out. I don't even remember the music. <laughs> it's, like, got this weird, like, chanty bit to it. Very strange. Hmm. I think that the, the, these, the kids in this film are, like, too sexual. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But that's just honest about teenage boys. But they're not teenage boys. They're ten-year-olds. <laughs> I, mean, I guess that's they what I thought are ten-year-olds. <laughs> that is they a bit felt too, They felt too uh, mature to, like, I don't know if you've read really like Hustle or whatever. Yeah, that's like twelve to fourteen, right? Yeah, but that's not that's not. I thought that song was really strange. Is that it like mixed like teenage qualities like that with like you know like ten year old things of like oh we're going up to our treehouse we're gonna make you eat like you know goop. Uh, there's one joke in particular that I thought was really uh, off putting and also just felt really off in general. Where one of the boys, their teachers played by Jennifer Lopez, is like. Oh, I want to be a gynecologist so that oh, yeah. I can look at you. And I was like, this this is a 10-year-old boy. <laughs> How does he know what that means? Maybe like a smart-ass 13, 14-year-old would yeah. say that, but not a 10-year-old. Yeah. It's just so weird. That was bizarre. And I noted that too. Um, I thought Ronald Williams was like weirdly like restrained, actually. Mm. I kind of wish he had been like more like over the top. I probably would have enjoyed that more. Yeah, he's restrained for the most part, but I, he can't resist throwing in a few obvious ad-libs, which really are at odds with a 10-year-old kid. Yeah. Uh, the only one I can think of off the top of my head is, like, when he's farting in a jar or something in the treehouse. Mm. He's like, out, demon, out, and a kid would not say that. No, no. That seems like something Robin Williams would improvise. It's, it's not like he gives a, a convincing performance either. No, no. He never feels like he's a 10-year-old boy. It just feels, I'd like to say, uh, the greatest movie of all time, Clifford. <laughs> yes, this is the perfect comparison. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> why is that so great and why is this so bad? Because I think, I think uh, Martin Short and Charles Grodin were both really committed to this movie, to Clifford. Uh, and it doesn't feel like anyone, but I mean, but that's not true even. It just doesn't feel like, I don't know. You should have been on his knees, is all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So you had some problems with believing the logic of this this story, the way it portrays yeah. this person suffering with war. I mean, obviously, obviously, uh, you know, it's 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 like magical realist or whatever. Like you have to yeah, suspend yeah. your disbelief. But it's just the 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 disease that it conjures up is so stupid. <laughs> but the things that annoyed me most were, were a little bit more minor, perhaps more petty on my part. But the <laughs> the one of the gags in the film is that when he first. Mm is uh, introduced to the classroom and then he has to sit down. Mm. No one thought to give him a desk that would accommodate the 40-year-old man body that he possesses (laughs) and expecting him to sit in a seat that is designed for a 10-year-old kid's body. That's just the reality of public schools, man. But, like, it's it's a chair, like, a teacher could sit on, like, just a normal chair could have just been there. Like, oh, hey, here's your special seat. Was this supposed to be a public or a private school, do you think? I don't think it was specified. And also, I the other thing that annoyed me, one way or the other. there's a sequence in which, like, he, you know, starts to bond with the kids over his ability <laughs> to be tall while playing basketball. Mm. And they're playing, like, half-court basketball. I don't know if you yeah. were a kid who ever played basketball, but I was. Um, off and on, you know. And the way they portray that game is not how you play half-court basketball. Even a 10-year-old mm. would know that. Because what happens is... The evil kids have possession of the basketball. Um, they're dribbling along and they try and get the ball in the ring. Robin Williams, being a 40-year-old man, is able to just snatch it out of the air or whatever. And then he yeah. proceeds to immediately dunk the ball into the basket. That's not yeah, how yeah. you play half-court basketball. Uh, you need to cross over the halfway line and then mm. return so that you can't just defend and then drop it in the basket. So it actually, like, mimics how you'd play basketball on a full-size court. That really annoyed me. <laughs> it annoyed you, annoyed you so much that you fell out of your chair. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of the weird way it portrays sexuality for these 10-year-old kids... The treehouse scene, you know, which is creepy enough, has this kind of Michael Jackson <laughs> vibe with Robin Williams up there playing with these kids and talking about sex. Oh, man. That, you yes. know, this is basically leaving Neverland, right? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and then as if that wasn't bad enough, and then Bill Cosby pops his head up <laughs> to join the fun. Oh, man. And, and just oh, to, to add extra bad associations... Um, Robin Williams' favourite toy is like a Stimpy doll, so. Yes, I thought that was funny. So two tarnished uh, things in this film. Mm-hmm. And my favourite line of this film, when in, 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 the, in a classroom discussion, uh, Jennifer Lopez like sets the kids a task of, of writing an essay about what they want to be when they grow up. Mm-hmm. And uh, Robin Williams like says mournfully to himself, what do I want to be when I grow up? Alive. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's pretty tough. <laughs> what did you think of the, the child performances? Um, I thought they were pretty, you know, child performy. Yeah, the usual child actory. But you know what bad. was interesting? Uh-huh. The two little girls who kind of appear to a te- appear occasionally in the narrative to, like, tease Robin Williams. Yeah were easily the best child actors in the film. They actually they actually mm. came across, like, convincing children. So it's kind of weird that we're saddled with, like, these boring kind of Disney kid performances for the rest of the film. Anyway, 
Yeah. But they did have like a weird edge to them because of all that weird sex stuff. Mm. That's true. What did you think of that great uh, Fran Drescher scene? <laughs> it was alright. Yeah. I mean, whatever. That wasn't the worst part of the film. I kind of enjoyed the bit with uh, Michael like the, the King and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, was yeah that was probably one of the highlights of the film, that whole section, actually. Yeah, I just enjoy anybody. Get, I just, like, enjoy watching drunk, like, impotent men for some reason. I think it's funny. <laughs> I like the bit where he has a wig. But that was that was good stuff. Are you ever a fan of Robin Williams in anything? Um, I, know, I didn't really grow up watching any of his movies, so... Mm. I can't... I'm trying to think of, of any films of his I have a particular fondness for. Um, I've seen uh, Miss Doubtfire a couple of times, but yeah, that was that was definitely a childhood staple for me, and I fucking loved the shit out of Hook. I, I've never seen it, so I absolutely uh, adore that film. Uh, I feel I feel like that would have been a good qualify. That that would have been good for this uh, this this podcast. Mm. But I will say, like, I think he's like a capable actor, mm. as a lot of comedians are. Yeah. But I, I don't think he's, or at least he's very seldom an interesting actor. I find both his dramatic persona and his comedy persona, mm. like, equally off-putting. Mm. There's, like, a desperation to be liked that comes through in both modes um, that, I, that I just find really unenjoyable. And um, even, like, even, like, his celebrated manic persona, I find... Mm. Irritating. Unfunny. It's like he uses energy as a substitute for wit. It's like Jim Carrey. That was kind of the comic archetype of the 80s and 90s, I feel. I bet I would like Popeye. <laughs> I would love to see Popeye. Um, I mean, I do like... I like Robin Williams in uh, World's Greatest Dad. I watched about half that movie with my brother and then we didn't finish it, so... I have no memory of anything in it. I, I like that film quite a bit. I don't think it's great, but I think it's a pretty good film. I kind of want to watch uh, that Christopher Nolan film he's in. Oh, uh, yeah. 24-hour photo, 2-hour photo, 1-hour no, no, no. photo. No, uh, it's a different film. Insomnia. Insomnia, Insomnia yeah. That's, a, that's yeah. another serious performance that he gave. Yeah, I do not find him to be a compelling presence. No. Isn't he an AI? Oh, yeah, he has like a cameo. Yeah, as Bicentennial Man. <laughs> <laughs> um... Oh, I guess I guess the Night at the Museum would be the films that I would know him for from the mm. best, actually. Thomas uh, Lennon's remember... The Night at Mu- the Museum film. <laughs> yeah. I remember I saw the first one uh, at a Boy Scout, like, um, <laughs> where we spent the night at an aquarium, and we saw it at their, in their IMAX theater. Wow. So, you know, yeah. I've seen the first uh, Night at the Museum quite a few times. So that's the one that I, I've seen. Uh, you spend the night at an aquarium with your, with your yeah. Boy Scout troop and you watch <laughs> yeah. at the museum. Yeah. That seems like the ideal context to watch that film. <laughs> yes. Um, Other than actually spending the night at a museum. Which I kind of did. A it was like, it was like an aquarium. It was like an aquarium plus like it had some like naval stuff. I don't know. It was a okay. place. Yeah, so anyway, Jack. It's funny, so, like, I was looking into why Francis Ford Coppola made this. Mm. And, like, it's tempting to dismiss it as something that he just took on as a job because he was deeply in debt at the time. Mm. And he was. 
But he did seem to legitimately want to make it, and he wanted to work with Robin Williams, so... I just feel like Frank Sorkop was one of those people who just does not have a sense of humor. Mm. Um, like, none of his films are, besides this, are, like, particularly, you know, comedic. You know? Mm. Um, I wrote down a note that I just had, I have one note for this, which I wrote down. One laugh, the pog joke. I don't remember what that's supposed <laughs> to do you know what it, it means? I think it was when he is released from prison. Oh, yes, and he gets a pog back, and the guy... The guy was trying to steal his like pog. Yeah, I thought that was kind of funny. Mm. Uh, but, you know, I feel like the, the problem with this film is, is, is a problem with a lot of um, Robin Williams films, is that I really find, like, uh, comedies that are also, like, you know, turn towards, like, super sentimentality to be obnoxious. Mm. Um, which is another reason, which is one of the reasons I don't like Adam Sandler that much, too, actually. Yeah. Um, but uh, anytime this movie was, like, you know, trying to trying to play up the, trying to, you know, strum the old heartstrings, I was, like, I'm dying. So, it's not funny either. So, <laughs> neither, neither side of its coin really works. No. I mean, it's kind of, Funny, like at the film's expense, watching like Robin Williams in old age makeup <laughs> yeah. delivering his stupid monologue at yeah, his graduation ceremony at the end of the film. I can't remember what the message was, but it was like I don't know what it was. It was like you know, live life. Carpe diem. Yeah. <laughs> it's, just, it's just the same thing as in uh, Dead Poet Society. What have they ever seen? Me either. I've been distracted by an Australian. Indeed. Yeah, this is. I feel like I wanted it to be worse. You know what I mean? I feel like I yeah. would have liked it if it was like more miscalculated. Yeah. That's what I mean. Like, it's basically like, just... It's just a yeah. Ron Williams family film from this era. Yeah. I mean, there are some creepy bits in it, to be sure, but... It should have gone full Clifford, is, is what I think. Mm. <laughs> um, so, yeah, pretty... pretty. So on the Clifford scale, this gets zero Cliffords. <laughs> yep. <laughs> It does not go to Dinosaur World. <laughs> <laughs> that should be our metric. <laughs> right, that should just um, be the two the two rankings. Does this film get to go to Dinosaur World? <laughs> I, I can abide that. Um, all right. Uh, so, are you ready to move on, or do you have any other words you'd like to dribble? I have no other about? words for the film, Jack. It's <laughs> a pretty bad episode, I think. Bonus <laughs> features. <laughs> So I watched one film other than the one we'll talk about next week. Which is Uncut Gems. Which is Uncut Gems, which we'll feature on next episode as our main feature. Yes. Which leaves the only other film I watched in the intervening couple of weeks since last episode, Tetsuo the Iron Man. Mmm. Good film. From 1989. Directed by Shinya Sukamoto. They just uh, announced that a huge box set of his films is coming out in the States. Mm. Which I'm probably going to buy. Um, so my brother lent me his copy. I also have the sequel remake mm. thing, uh, which I haven't watched yet. What about what about the third one? But no, just those two. Uh, I, I don't know anyone who's seen the third one. I didn't know there was a third one. Yep. Tetsuo the Bullet Man. It stars an American. Wow. Yep. I think it's in English, too. I saw Shedia Tsukamoto in person not that long ago. 
Did you really? Yeah, because I went to that screening of uh, Killing last year. Oh, week. yeah, that's right. It was on my uh, top ten of the year. Mm. How was he? Um, good? Yeah, Doing he was well? good. We didn't really see him that much because my friend didn't want to stay for the Q&A, so. Wow. Oh, yeah. He, I seemed, he seemed well. He seemed, he seemed well. Um, you've already talked about Tess with the Iron Man on this podcast, correct? I have, yep. It's a good film. Yeah, it is. I think there's, there's yeah, like... Nice and short. <laughs> it's uh, basically perfect for what it is, I would say. Yeah, I, I it's hard to think of a better version. And I, I think it's some of the best uses of stop motion in a live action film that I've ever seen. Yeah, it's pretty good. Because, like, traditionally when you're using stop motion in the pre-digital era, it was used as a special effect, right? Mm. And yeah. there was that kind of shuddery motion that would sort of stand out from the rest of the film. Which can have its own charm, but, you know, it does mm. detract from the effect that they're trying to achieve or the continuity between the real footage and the stop motion footage. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Right. But this really leans into the rhythm of that stutter that you get with stop motion. And um, it really fits the world of this film and the way he's edited it together in a really satisfying way. Yeah, it, the the live action shots themselves sort of feel uh, uh, stop motiony. Actually, the way they traverse distances is done as stop motion live action. Yeah. yeah. So he's just like taking a still of the yeah, the scene where and, where he's being in chased in the still. in the subway is pretty pretty great. I mean, all of it's good, but and the scene where the the two Iron Men things are like chasing one another is astonishing. Yeah. And it was apparently, like, such a difficult shoot that they went through, like, a turnover of crew constantly. Because <laughs> no one wanted to, like, return to work after a horrible week. Remember Oregon? Mmm, I do. That was a good movie. It was. Anyway. This is a great film. Yeah, I agree. I, I want to watch the, the sequel as well. Mm, me too. The third one. I've heard the sequel is more like, um, you know, more of like a actual movie, I guess. It's more like, um, it's less of like a, a poem. Yeah. Well, although I will say like in contrast to Organ, mm. the narrative of Tetsuo the Iron Man is somewhat legible. It does yeah. have that same sort of obtuseness in the way that it introduces story elements and expects you to just come to grips with it. But by the end, you do understand the core of the story, right? To some yeah, extent. That's true. Like, it's revealed that, you know, there was this car accident and that yeah. triggers the whole thing. And the way that that actually emerges through the narrative, even though it's so, like like you said, like a tone poem or something, I thought was actually really well done. Yeah. Even though it's like, you know, not a hugely complex narrative in the end, it actually does come through yeah. quite successfully. I think I think the enigmatic like um, way it's told is, is it works as it, it's paired well to the sort of uh, elusive style as well. Mm. Whereas like with Organ, although it was a pleasure in its own right, it was just yeah, there's less know, there's less to hold on to in that. It had a lot more yeah. narrative and it was it was yeah. seemingly more conventional, but it was also a lot yeah, more it's, it's harder to understand, <laughs> yeah. Which is fine. I don't I think Yeah, but which worked in its own way. Yeah, that that 
again, like even thinking back on that now, it still feels like it was a nightmare I had rather than a film I watched. Yeah, for sure. And I think, yeah, Tetsuo the Iron Man kind of fulfills that brief as well. Yes. Um, Yeah. Yeah, People often like uh, say this is like, oh, it's a cross between so-and-so and and David Lynch, you know, Cronenberg, David Lynch, Brunwell, as I'm scrolling through Letterboxd right now. And I think they're all reductive comparisons, even though they're not without. I, I can get, I can basis. get why someone would go with Cronenberg, uh, uh, especially, but yeah, it it definitely feels singular. It's, it does feel extremely singular. Yeah. Um, all right. So uh, shall I go into my films? Go for that it. That I watched. Okay. So I started off my uh, in between this session and last session by watching a very important movie that you've already talked about on the show. A film by the singular uh, Hong Kong auteur Wong Jing called Prince Charming, mm. <laughs> which uh, I thought was very enjoyable. Maggie Chung's uh, first screen appearance. Yes, um, and she doesn't really have a lot to do in this film, um, but I was charmed by Prince Charming. Uh, and I really enjoyed sort of its, uh, tasteless, go-for-broke comedic style. Um, I liked just all the weird sort of digressions. I like that the narrative is, and that the reality of the film is just punctured constantly. Mm. Um, and it has probably, it, it, you know, I, I was kind of, uh, getting a little sick of it by the end, and then the actual end sequence is incredible and bizarre. Yeah. It comes out of nowhere. I remember it's having so the same amazing. experience. I was, like, kind of impressed that it manages to be somewhat boring, despite being, like, yeah. 70 minutes long, and then it becomes amazing again. <laughs> yeah. The, the end of this movie is, uh, it's better if we don't talk about it, just because it's so weird and, uh, comes out of nowhere. Mm. Um, and I, I followed that particular film up with a film by Maggie Chung's erstwhile uh, co-star, Jackie Chan, uh, which she also wrote and directed and produced. And according to Wikipedia, has the Guinness Book of World Records for having the most credits for any film on this mm-hmm. film, uh, which is a film that is called... <laughs> It has a lot of titles, but the one that I uh, have come to use is Chinese Zodiac. It is also known as uh, uh, C, uh, <laughs> Z12, and um, I think there might be some, in some territories, might be uh, actually labeled with the armor of God, too, uh, which is this uh, very strange propaganda blockbuster film that he made. <laughs> um which I went into expecting uh, to laugh at, and I did laugh at it quite a bit. Um, it's pretty boring, I will say. Uh, a lot of it is in English um, and French. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Uh, a lot of the movie takes place in France, actually. Hmm. Um, it's sort of about... Uh, Jackie Chan plays this, uh, I don't know, like treasure hunter type feller. As far as I could tell, it's less... Indiana Jones-ish than the other uh, uh, Armor of God films, which I've not seen. Um, but uh, this movie is about him. There's these Zodiac heads that uh, imperialism stole from the weakened China, and he has to recover them, basically. That's the entirety of it. Um, 
it's a film that makes you feel weird because on one hand you're like, yeah, these artifacts should probably be repatriated to China, but I don't, I don't know if I like watching this entire movie about how, I don't know, the Chinese government is correct <laughs> uh, about everything. Uh, there's a great scene where a group of protesters, um, their leader is talking to Jackie Chan, uh, and she's like, okay, rule number one, guys, we don't attack the police. Rule number two, we don't disturb the peace. And rule number three, we never are violent. And <laughs> then uh, she turns to Jackie Chan, and then Jackie Chan like is like looking directly at the camera. He's like, and he gives a thumbs up. He's like, yeah. And it's just like Jackie Chan says, don't protest. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so that's pretty funny. Um, but there's a lot of stretches in this movie that are just pretty boring, you know, sort of shitty, like CGI action sequences. Mm. Um but I will say that the finale at this sort of factory that is designed to forge art, which is run by um, Oliver Platt, of all people. It's <laughs> <laughs> like the one American actor in the film. Um, yeah, it is kind of enjoyable. <laughs> and enough of that old Jackie Chan magic that I was kind of feeling it. Hmm. And this was helped by the... Uh, you know, it has a traditional uh, bloopers wheel, which is just watching him get hurt, which I quite enjoyed. Mm. Um, yeah, so uh, I kind of uh, wound up liking Chinese Zodiac more than I thought I would. Uh, it's pretty bad, and yeah, it is a, you know, through and through a propaganda film, but I enjoyed it. So, two and a half stars. Cool. <laughs> uh, I'd actually I, be quite I'll, interested in watching that. Well, we'll watch it for our other podcast at some point. <laughs> We can watch all of his uh, <laughs> recent propaganda films. Um, but uh, the very next day, I followed that up with a Wes Craven film called The People Under the Stairs, mm-hmm. uh, which I thought was really enjoyable. Uh, it has this sort of like, um, I don't know, like ghost story or goosebumpsy feel. Um, mm-hmm. And has some like very blunt satire about uh, gentrification and Reaganism. But it kind of reminded me of. Um, they live in a way where almost the fact that it's like so obvious and like on the nose makes it better in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it just has this very pleasurable vibe. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's about this kid who gets roped into this like robbery scheme cause he needs money, um, to pay for his ailing, uh, family and he's about to get evicted from his apartment. So they, uh, have this plot to rob, um, this, the, their landlord's uh, home. It's him and Ving Rhames. Oh, he's pretty great, as you might expect, because mm. Rhames is also always pretty great. Um, and uh, so they go into rob the house, and things are not what they seem. Uh, Wes Craven sure loves traps. <laughs> uh, and I thought this film was really funny, and uh, I don't know if scary, but... There are some pretty intense sequences and uh, some good, like, gore effects and stuff. So it has a weird um, uh, reunion between uh, Wendy Robbie and Everett McGill, uh, from who both of whom or play a married couple on Twin Peaks and who also play a married couple in this film, mm. uh, but who are villainous in this movie. So good stuff. Now I'm just thinking of that weird uh, moment where Bing Rames tried to get Jack Lemon to take his Emmy Award. Oh, yeah, that's funny. So awkward. Mm. Uh, I believe it is. I believe uh, it was a Golden Globe. But it was for a TV. It was for a TV performance. Yes. 
Jacqueline was playing uh, in a TV remake of Twelve Angry Men. He's playing one of the jurors, and Ving Rhames is playing Gone King <laughs> in an HBO movie. So very strange. Um, so I watched another sort of horror comedy film called Tammy and the T Rex, mm-hmm. uh, which is a uh, it was this very low budget um, film where basically they had this director and they called him up and were like, okay, so. Uh, we have this animatronic uh, T-Rex puppet that's going to be uh, shipped to an amusement park. We have it for three weeks at this point of time. And um, basically, you have to co- you know, come make a movie you know, for a million dollars. Um, and what he turned in was this very bizarre film about where Paul Walker plays this teenager whose brain gets put into, a, uh, into the, this T-Rex um, and he basically has his revenge on the, um, the teenagers who hate him and also the scientists and everyone else. It's incredibly gory. Um, another, another fun fact about this film is that it was released directed DVD in the nineties, uh, with all the gore scenes edited out, um, for some reason, um, which I, I've not seen the PG 13 version, so I can't comment, uh, but this is a very entertaining film. So this is the restored uh, version. Yes, um, which I purchased on a 4K Blu-ray, <laughs> uh, and stars uh, Paul Walker and Denise Richards. Um, there are you know T-Rex sex jokes, which I quite enjoyed, uh, and the film ends with a bizarre striptease to a computer. So, great, great, enjoyable stuff. I forgot to say the other film I actually did watch. What? Which is what? National Treasure. Ah. <laughs> because I signed up for Google Plus. I signed up for another free trial to watch Jack. You Disney Plus. I thought Plus. while I was there, Disney Plus, um, I would watch National Treasure. Mm, very enjoyable film. Yeah, pretty enjoyable. Yeah. Apparently they're making a third one finally. Um, should I bother watching the sequel before my trial expires in like a day? Um, the sequel's pretty fun. There's a scene where he kidnaps the president. I think the first one is more fun, though. Yeah. Um, but the second one does have uh, Ed Harris in it, so. Mm-hmm. And there's a great scene where Nicolas Cage is doing like, a British accent, so. <laughs> uh, it's, 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 it's worth watching, I think. Okay. Um, we'll see. Yeah, I'm sure you won't watch it. Um, but then I, uh, I followed Tammy and the T-Rex with another sort of black comedy with a lot of, uh, a lot of T-Rexes and dinosaurs in it, actually, which is, uh, I watched a movie that I watched uh, two weeks ago, which is a film called Clifford. <laughs> <laughs> so I started the new year off, right? Um, uh, I had some uh, friends spend the night, spend the weekend with me, um, and I was like, we're going to watch this. So we watched it. It was great. Uh, then I went and saw uh, Mask of the Red Death, the uh, Roger Corman, Edgar Allan Poe adaptation. Uh, which is a, a very enjoyable film. Uh, has this great Vincent Price performance and some very stunning, gorgeous cinematography done by Nicholas Rogue of all people. Um, and it just is a very entertaining film. Uh, there's a great scene where a man in a ape costume gets burned to death by <laughs> a dwarf, which I thought was incredibly entertaining. Um, and I really liked it a lot. Uh, and then I decided to, you know, uh, make my week even better by rewatching Tammy the T-Rex uh, with a commentary track. Learned all sorts of interesting little tidbits about its production. 
Uh, and I followed that up with, uh, you know, the only film that could possibly go with it, which is Orson Welles' The Stranger, which I recently got a Blu-ray. Um, That's been sitting in my Netflix queue for like a year. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it'll never go anywhere because it is a film in the public domain. So, um, but yeah, it's this very enjoyable noir film that he directed. It's often called like the most anonymous of his films. Uh, and I kind of agree with that, but that doesn't stop it from being really good. Mm. Uh, and has this sort of nightmarish logic to it that I think really works. Um, and I really enjoyed it a lot. Um, and then I watched, I think, one of, probably one of your favorite movies, which is Jackie Chan, My Stunts. <laughs> which is Great just film. this really, really bizarre film where Jackie Chan takes you behind the scenes to show you how he does all his stunts. Um, I think the thing I enjoyed most about it was, I mean, it was great watching this him do all these stunts, but I, I like being uh, absorbed into the universe of his stunt team, uh, <laughs> which he very much makes seem like his, like, like he's a, a cult leader or something mm. because basically none of them have any dialogue in the film and they just exist for him to beat the shit out of. <laughs> uh, and an addendum to this, I think we have to talk about this video that we both watched, mm. um, which is all of this is on the Criterion Blu-ray release of Police Story and Police Story 2. Um, but this video uh, where he gets reunited with his stunt team, which is just uh, one of the funniest things I think I've ever seen in my entire life. Would you agree with that? <laughs> Where there's this, this great montage of all these stunt performers being like, Big Brother, we love you. You, you did so many great things to me. You lent me money when I needed it. You gave me a jacket. It just cuts to Jackie Chan's dead, emotionless eyes. <laughs> Still over and over again. Uh, it's really funny. Uh, definitely worth a watch, that video is. Uh, I watched the new uh, David Lynch short film, What Did Jack Do? Which I thought was very funny. <laughs> I meant to watch I've that, watched, but I just didn't. It's it's very short. Uh, it's nineteen minutes. It's kind it's kind of uh it, it is a little tedious, but the tedium makes it more funny, I think. Mm. So, um, like it has a kind of like um rake effect or or uh, you know you know what I mean where a joke doesn't doesn't feel like it's that funny at first, but then they keep on going for it and it becomes more funny the more they commit to it. I mean that's how I hope anyway. Yeah, that's how we do this podcast, right? Mm. Uh, and then I rewatched. It's literally which our like only comedic mode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean it's pretty funny. So, um, I rewatched uh, the Little Shop of Horrors. I had a kind of Roger Corman. If I, there's two themes to this week, it's Roger Corman and Jackie Chan. Because <laughs> uh, I'll talk about more in a little bit. Um, but so I watched uh, Little Shop of Horrors uh, again with a commentary track. Uh, pretty decent commentary. Um, and then I went to the theaters and watched a film called 1917, which is the Oscar frontrunner, which I figured I wanted to watch before oh, the wow. Oscars. Oh, wow. Uh, which is pretty bad. Uh, and pretty bad? Like a, yeah. It feels like a video game, um, but not a very good one. And there's not really anything exciting or, um, I don't know, funny. But there is one uh, subplot that I wanted to share with you because it's one of the funniest things I've seen like unintentionally in my in recent film going uh, career, mm. uh, which is there's this weird scene where um, one of the main characters, his you know water bottle is empty, right, or his canteen. So they're on a farm and he finds this pail of milk, uh, and it's like uh, still fresh. So he fills his canteen up with milk for some reason, right? Mm-hmm. So that was kind of a strange choice because you know you figure you're in in a war situation like that milk's going to go bad pretty quickly, right? 
Uh, it's especially inexplicable after they uh, another development during the scene makes them use like the well that's on the property. So I didn't really understand why uh, he filled his canteen up with milk. And uh, then uh, midway through the film, there's this bizarre sequence where he is fighting in this French town, and he goes into this basement, and there's a woman living there with a child. <laughs> and so there's a great scene <laughs> where he's taking all these canned goods out of his backpack. He's like, "Here, take take these take these this food. I, I you, you can eat it. The baby can eat it." And the the woman's like. No, the, the the baby can only drink milk. It's like okay, <laughs> okay. It's so stupid. Um, yeah, not a very enjoyable film. So it's like an adventure game. It's a good thing you picked up that milk. It really does feel like a video game. Like there's something about the, like, the dialogue that feels like very canned and like mm. sort of you know <laughs> written in that way and like whenever they like, go past extras there's this like sensation where they're like doing something like that's like sort of like um you know specific but not enough to like take your attention like you know there's, I mean? there's an npc yeah in the background feel, yeah because it, it just sort of like they do like their thing and if you, you feel like if the camera were to go back it would like they just do the same thing over and over again you know <laughs> um but uh it was it was unsuccessful i think i did same so they did not enjoy it and then uh I, after that, went and saw another movie at the theaters, in the theaters, which is a film, a little film, we talked about uh, last episode, actually, called Little Women, uh, which I saw and loved even more, so. Mm. Uh, little Women, Big Hearts. That's the sort of photo of the tagline. You saw it um, sans all the uh, extraneous distractions yeah. that sullied your previous viewing. That's right. Uh, so that led me to appreciate it even more, possibly. Mm. So, uh, great, great film. Okay, uh, and then I followed that up. On the same day, I watched a little film called Police Story 3 Super Cop. Ooh. Uh, so I was actually a little disappointed by, to be honest. Wow. Um, and, you know, when people talk about this movie, they mostly are talking about the last, like, 15 or... 10 minutes or so. Yeah. Which I will grant are incredible. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's just this like series of great stunts, which include Jackie, you know, swinging from this helicopter that's just, that's just flying over uh, Kuala Lumpur, which is amazing. And then Michelle Yeoh jumping a dirt bike onto a train. I'm it's not one of, it's certainly one of his best sustained set pieces, I think. Yes. Yeah. But the uh, rest of the movie, yeah, does not that entertain by, to be honest. The rest uh, of the movie doesn't kind of matter. felt like a. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's not true. It just felt it, it. It just felt like a shitty like Pierce Brosnan and James Bond film a little bit. Um, the, the, it's and, it's tonally off, like from yeah. what was good about the police story films. Because what's good about the police story films is that you know they're they are, you know there's a there's strong comedic elements. There are scenes that are just devoted to comedy. Um, and I feel like I feel like Jackie Chan works best. When he is playing sort of an ordinary person, yeah. you know, yeah, where yeah. he has the, he's in like a, a normal job, like, um, you know, in, in Police Story 1 or 2 where he's just like a random, or he's like a, you know, <laughs> obviously he's very talented, but he's just sort of a, a police officer. Yeah. And this film, literally the first scene is like, we need a super cop, and it's going to be Jackie Chan, and I'm just like, I'm already like, I don't, I'm not that interested in this. <laughs> um, and I think Michelle Yeoh is paradoxically the best part of this movie, and mm. also I think... 
I would have liked it more if she weren't in it, in a way. Well, she's in the, she's the sort like, of spinoff. Yeah, which is Super Cop 2 or um, Once a, Once Upon a Cop or whatever. Yeah. But I will say, like, I mean, I guess this is somewhat more serious in tone than the other police story yeah. films. But that sort of mode of this type of film is much better realized in crime story. Mm, I'll have to watch that then. Did Stanley Tong also direct that? No. But Jackie didn't direct it. No, he didn't. But, like, it's a more serious, straightforward... Yeah, police story film. Police story style film. Yeah. Uh, I think it actually works really well. I really... I was I was surprised by how good it was. Kirk Wong. Mm. I can't say I'm familiar. Um, but uh, I, th- I just thought this film was kind of flat, and... I mean, obviously, the last... 10 minutes are fantastic, but I could just watch that. I, I feel like I didn't need to have the context of it. Also. I mean, there's some enjoyable bits in it to be sure, but there's just too many scenes of him, like shooting people with guns. And I'm kind yeah, of just yeah. like, yeah, the gun, the gun play other. stuff is, is certainly less interesting. Yeah. Um, it just, again, I could just feel like he was slotted into like a stolen vehicle or something like that. Um, which is actually kind of similar to another Jackie Chan movie. I watch called the protector. Which is one of his aborted attempts to bring into the American market in the eighties, uh, along with um, the Big Brawl and the Cannibal Run films, mm. um, which is this sort of like really trashy exploitation film, uh, where uh, you know I feel like in most uh, Jackie Chan films, at least the police story films, he plays kind of a um, you know a, a Jerry Lewis esque character, <laughs> let's say. Uh, who doesn't doesn't have much of a sexual appetite? Uh, I think it's fair to say. Mm. Um, but in this movie, he uh, apparently fucks all the time, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's paired with Danny Aiello, uh, and there's this great scene where they go get an erotic massage together. Just <laughs> <is> so bizarre. <laughs> it just it just feels so. Uh, I feel like Jackie Chan is somebody who really controlled his persona after this movie. Um, and I, I enjoy how atypical this feels. Mm. It is, it is canon. Um, cause it really just feels like a, at the beginning it feels like a really strong, like a Charles Bronson movie. Cause it's like, you know, set in this like grimy New York where it's totally lawless that punks will just destroy a truck and steal all the goods out of it. Um, and, uh, <laughs> this movie also features a lot of gunplay, but unlike, um, uh, Police Story Three. It's super bloody and violent, and mm. <laughs> I I enjoyed it for how like ridiculous it is. Um, and I I definitely think it's worth a watch. Um, yeah. Uh, and then I saw an anime film called Weathering with You, which I was not a fan of, uh, just because it feels like it's just is that the your like, name? Cliche. Guy? Yeah. Mm. Did you see your name? No. Um, but it just feels like the most like cliche anime fucking garbage. Um, and I, there's one part that I really enjoyed, which is like this, this is a film that has a lot of, uh, musical montages, uh, with the lyrics helpfully printed on screen. Okay. <laughs> really? But yeah. And the first, the first two times it happened, I was like, okay, whatever. And then the end sequence, like strings, like three of them, like one after the other. And by the end of the second one, I was fucking losing it. Cause I was like, why are there so many musical montages? <laughs> Uh, I mean, I obviously know why, so this film could make a fan base. Um, it just feels like it was a film made for, like, 15-year-olds. Mm. Um, so, but it's really unenjoyable. Not the mature uh, anime fan. Yeah, exactly. I, can't, I couldn't jack off to it, is what I'm saying. Mm. 
Um, and then I watched a little uh, film, because my roommate had never seen it, called The Shining, uh, which, you know, that Stanley Kubrick guy, he's a good director. Mm. I don't know if you know that. Um, I really enjoyed watching The Shining. <laughs> uh, contrary to Stephen King's uh, weird uh, decision with the film, I like that Jack Nicholson is just completely nuts the entire time. I, I actually uh, find the films that are considered less successful or that have some sort of mixed opinions um, surrounding them are fun in a way that some of the other films aren't necessarily. Kubrick's, you mean? Hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I really enjoy this a lot. I don't know how to say besides that. It's, it feels like it's, there's a reason it's so classic. Uh, and I think that it is a pretty good sort of like satire or, um, I don't know, uh, stood up of like, uh, you know, the paternal nuclear family. So mm. even if uh, uh, Kubrick's own actions on set were not reflective of that satire. So, <laughs> uh, but Shelley Duvall, um, you know, obviously she was really abused on set, but her performance. But it really worked, good. so always forgiven. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's um, just and by he, the means. And he, you know, the, the child and it does it gives a really good performance too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just, I just feel like I, uh, it's, it's good stuff. There's, there's not a lot left to be said about it, I don't think. But, I don't know. Good movie. Uh, and then on that very same day, I watched, um, uh, let's just say a great film uh, by the auteur behind Prince Charming, Wang Jing, starring Jackie Chan, called City Hunter, uh, which I thought was amazing. Mm. <laughs> um, there's one part that I didn't enjoy, which is the, uh, I mean... Besides all the like problematic stuff, um, the uh, if there's one thing that unites all every Wong Jing film I've, I've seen, there, there's the ever present threat of rape in all of his movies. Um, but uh, this film, as sort of like a live action cartoon, I thought was really effective and really funny, and it felt at times like a Seijun Suzuki film, which I was not expecting. Mm. Um, it just has this like great color palette, and uh, again, this is another sort of um, you know. Uh, variation on the Jackie Chan persona um, where he's playing a character that is dumber and more elemental, let's say, than his the majority of his characters. Which is possibly why he disliked the film. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and there's one scene where he is staring at a woman's breasts and because he's so hungry, they look like chicken sandwiches, which I thought was really funny. <laughs> and then he looks at her legs and her arms and they look like chicken wings and chicken legs. I remember uh, that. hilarious. Uh, it's a great scene. Uh, I like the way that Wong Jing, in every film besides High Risk, incorporates uh, animation into his films. Mm. Uh, uh, there's a there's a great scene where all the characters dress up like Street Fighter characters for no reason that I could tell, mm. <laughs> uh, which I thought was really funny. Um, and I just this film was exactly to my sensibility. It reminded me a lot of like something like Zazie Danzo Metro. Mm. It's just sort of like this Dadaist. Um, there's no like uh, respect given to convention or anything. Uh, and I like how sleazy Jackie Chan is, too. Because, like, the opening scene is basically, like, his partner gets killed, and then in his dying breath is like, uh, you have to raise my cousin, and don't have, don't, don't seduce her. And then, uh, um, <laughs> she turns, uh, over the course of one staircase down from a child into Joey Wong, uh, and then he wants to fuck her, and that's the <laughs> entire movie, pretty much. <laughs> and, I think it's pretty great. So as someone who uh, appreciates that level of tastelessness, I have to say I thought this is 
uh, very amusing. Mm. Uh, there's this great scene at the end where um, the CEO is like, Jackie, please marry my uh, uh, my daughter. And he's like, no, I, I can never give myself to one woman, which is true to Jackie Chan's real life. So, you know. <laughs> um, and uh, so then I watched a sort of a, not, not sequel, but a film that uh, was made directly as a result of City Hunter, which is another Wong Jing film called High Risk, uh, which is a jetly vehicle, sort of a diehard knockoff sort of parody, um, where, uh, which is no, notable because it has a very sort of cruel and petty um, satire of, not satire, but uh, uh, sort of uh, takedowns against Jackie Chan. Um, because but, Jackie uh, Chan publicly stated his displeasure with uh, City Hunter. Yes, yes. So Wong Jing responded by making this film uh, where Jackie Chan, or Jackie Chan stand-in, uh, is portrayed as a drunk and womanizer, <laughs> which I think is are both true accusations. I don't know about uh, drunkenness, but... <laughs> uh, anyway, but there, there's a great scene where uh, he's urinating in a, in a urinal, and it, the camera uh, shows has this full frame, like you know, wide screen shot of his small penis. And just makes him into an idiot who doesn't do his own stunts. Um, and uh, that that straight in the movie, I thought was really enjoyable and funny. <laughs> it, it just just it's just so petty. Uh, but um, uh, the rest of the movie I thought was kind of, I don't know, I don't really find Jet Li to be that compelling of a presence, to be honest. Mm. We saw in this film. Um, and his whole storyline I thought was kind of bland. I wish it had been a little more, like, gonzo, or it, it felt a little, like, too high budget, maybe. I don't know. I must say, like, that felt a little, Jet Li and Wong Jing a little bland. aren't quite the bad, best match. Bad mix. Yeah, because yeah, Jet Li doesn't really have the same, like, comedic... No, he's kind of stolen. Um, and that, that's the problem so is that it, the, the, I mean, it's, it's like sort of described as a diehard parody, but it kind of plays all the sort of terroristy elements straight. Um, though, uh, giving points to it, I do how, like how like just immediately sort of tasteless it is where the film opens with a school bus filled with uh, children and Jet Li's wife and child getting blown up. <laughs> that was pretty great. <laughs> um, but I, I enjoyed the performance by the villain whose name I'm forgetting. Uh, let me just look it up real quick. But, yeah, just the, the scenes, maybe just because I've been watching so many Jackie Chan movies recently, um, but the scenes where, where Jet Li is just shooting people, I thought were, there are, there are some compelling bits, but I think that, um, I almost wish the film had been more tasteless for, uh, than it, than it was. Mm. I mean, it's pretty tasteless. But, uh, at the end, the Jackie Chan character, um, manages to do something heroic, which I would have preferred if he had not. Mm. Um, but there's a great scene where uh, you're, you watch a character who is, like, dressed as Jackie Chan's dad. <laughs> like, he's, like, wearing the... If you if you look Google Jackie Chan's dad, there's, like, a hat that he wears, right? Mm. Uh, and he's wearing that hat. He has, like, this, like, specific mustache that Jackie Chan's dad has. And you just watch him get the shit beat out of him, which is always really funny. <laughs> It's a great scene where, um, you know, the character playing Jackie Chan's manager gets thrown out of a window. <laughs> just, that was pretty funny. <laughs> but uh, I just, I, I wish uh, I wish it had just gone a little bit further. Um, and uh, the non, like, sort of, um, you know, parody or, or, you know, cruel parts I thought were uh, 
a little boring. But the guy who plays Jackie Chan, whose name is Jackie Chung, <laughs> I, thought was, I, thought, I thought was great. <laughs> he's like the right, he's, he, he hits the, the tone a lot better than Jet Li does. So, uh, definitely worth a watch, but don't expect anything uh, particularly, you know, ast- astonishing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, I watched a couple more films. <laughs> Uh, I watched uh, the Looney Tunes short Hair Remover, um, which is this really, it's pretty funny little short where um, Elmer Fudd is a scientist who is making a potion to make things into monsters and basically kidnaps Bugs Bunny and, you know, it's a Looney Tunes short, so, you know, stuff happens. It's pretty easy, and I watched it because I watched another film by his director, who's Frank Tashlin, called Artisan Models, which is... Um, one of the final Jerry Lewis, Dean Martin um, collaboration movies. Uh, and I really enjoyed Artists and Models, too. Mm. Uh, if I had to point to a flaw, it might be the same flaw that something like City Hunter also has, which is uh, has a couple extraneous musical numbers, which I did not uh, particularly enjoy. Um, but anytime Jerry Lewis is on screen, I'm fucking dying. <laughs> Uh, I, I guess I, you know, I, I don't think I've seen another movie that he's in, but um, his, uh, uh, like, persona in this, in this film is so funny to me, because he's basically just this, like, uh, mentally challenged incel uh, who's obsessed with this, like, um, bat woman character. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and <laughs> just the way his voice is, like, uh, so squeaky, it's just like, Rick, I, it's me, it's Jerry, it's, it's really funny. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, you know, this film, I mean, Frank Tashman's sort of known for his satiric touches in his films. Uh, this movie's kind of about, um, comic books and sort of the hysteria that came out, uh, in the fifties about them. Uh, and it scores some pretty fun punches and it's just really consistently funny and colorful and, uh, you know, Shirley MacLaine is in it. So, mm. you know, playing a, uh, a model for, um, you know, Bat Lady. So that's artists and models. Uh, highly, highly recommended. Uh, then I watched one final movie. I went to the theater yesterday and saw a film called Gretel and Hansel, <laughs> uh, which is a horror movie directed by Anthony Perkins' son, Oz Perkins. Oh, I didn't know it was Anthony Perkins' son. Okay. Yeah. Yep. I've heard uh, some uh, positive reviews for that. Um, well, I'm sorry to say that I'm not going to control Whoa! one. Uh, <laughs> I didn't hate this film by any means, but uh, I thought it was pretty boring. <laughs> so, I feel like almost every some... horror movie that that gets, well, this is a great new modern horror classic from um, critical circles is usually kind of underwhelming. Uh, I, I I wonder if I would like it. I would have liked it more if I hadn't seen it in theater because there seemed to be some sort of. I mean, you know, a lot of um, film theaters, especially like big uh, multiplexes. Uh, uh, underlight their films to, you know, just, I mean, the, their justification is to make the bulbs last longer, but in reality, just make every movie look kind of flat. What? Um, yeah. What? Is this a surprise to you? Yeah. I think we talked about it when we watched Us, because I had a really adverse experience where basically the film was like, the dark scenes were like impossible. To yeah, watch I remember, I remember you saying that. Was, I didn't know that was actually yeah. a common practice. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's 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 shitty obviously but so i wonder if it would have been better if i i mean I, it's hard to tell it could have just been the way the film was lit too um but 
there are some elements of this film that I enjoyed. Um, like the production design is very nice. It has some sort of uh, Suspiria-esque uh, flourishes, but it doesn't go quite far enough, I don't think. Mm. Uh, and I thought the lead performance by Sophia Willis was super annoying mm. and uh, sort of uh, maybe dislike the rest of the film. Um, but it's okay. And it's, sort of, it's just a little dull. So, I don't know. But not a, not a terrible film by any means. Uh, and that is every movie that I watched. Um, so what are we going to do next week on the show, Hugh? Uncut Gems and the last two films in our project about bad films by good people. Which are... I don't know. Blame it on I Rio. I know one of them is Blame it on Rio is the one that I remember. And... Billy Budd? Nope. No. What is it? Do you remember? I don't know. I don't remember. Not Billy Budd? Do you remember? Not Billy Budd. Why would it be Billy Budd? Not the Billy Wilder film that has a similar oh, name. Buddy Buddy. Buddy Jesus Buddy. Jesus Christ, you, you dipshit. Is that what it is? No. Okay. Buddy Buddy had like a 50% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. He had to, we went for the really low ones, remember? Alright, give me a second, I'll find it. Alright. Uh, Bonfire of the Vanities. Oh. Uh, uh, I'm actually kind of excited to watch that one. Blame it on Rio. <laughs> it's the <laughs> lowest by far. It's like almost it half the score right? of uh, De Palma's one. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited for these. I'm definitely, definitely more excited about these than I, am about, I was about either of the films this week. <laughs> <laughs> Blame it on Rio. I've been wanting to watch for years. Hmm. Just because it sounds so bad. Uh, okay, great. Oh, friend. Oh.